Welcome to the Athens Frontline, a podcast presented by the Red and Black that covers topics in health and wellness. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra, here to discuss healthcare disparities within the LGBTQIA community, efforts healthcare professionals should make, and stigmas around verbiage and diagnoses. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Dr. Timothy Brown is a professor of pharmacology in the AU-UGA Medical Partnership. He has worked his entire career to make healthcare easily accessible and stigma-free for the LGBTQ community. Dr. Brown has also been a champion for preventing diseases that affect the community more than their heterosexual counterparts, as he was one of the first practitioners to start offering PrEP to prevent HIV and worked with others to educate physicians about sexual history taking, why honest documentation reduces medical errors, and how to manage patients on hormone therapy. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Now, before we start, I just want to make sure and I want to uh, kind of do a pre-warning type of thing. We've been researching and we've been learning a lot of vocabulary for this episode. And so we're going to make sure that I am using the correct vocabulary. And Dr. Brown, if I'm not, please feel free to correct me. Um, And so I just wanted to put that out there. But uh, I just wanted to start off with a question that kind of at the very surface of it shows the intersection between healthcare, what is needed to be done, and then the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. So when treating LGBTQIA plus patients, what should healthcare professionals keep an eye out for in comparison to treating cisgender and or heterosexual patients? Yeah, I think one of the things that sort of trips people up is as we get further into healthcare and we learn that we need to take care of our patients as individuals, that we're slowly focusing on the ideas of ethnicity, background, gender identity, because it does play a role in how we offer care within the healthcare system. Great example. We're talking a little bit about earlier about people living in this community. If they're transgender, what was their birth sex? What's their identified sex? And the reason for that is because health screenings may change, but yet they may also stay the same. A great example would be, let's say you have someone that was born male transitioned to female, so male to female transgender, they still retain a prostate, so screening does have to play a role. It's not that it's necessarily different, it's just understanding the individual patients by creating an atmosphere where people can just be honest about their gender identity, their sexual preferences, all those kinds of things, and then a care plan's created. I don't know if it's necessarily different, it's just treating everybody with respect. I loved how you brought up creating a safe space, being honest with your healthcare provider. At some point in history, it was hard for a lot of people in this community to have that safe space, to be honest. A good example of that is, you know, the HIV AIDS, um, you know, epidemic and being honest about that, it created such a stigma for not only people and how they looked at the LGBTQIA plus community, but how the community looked at healthcare professionals. And so what are some of these health disparities in the LGBTQIA plus community that exists today? And 
are we making the correct, you know, efforts towards solving them? Well, I'll say this. We've come a long way, but we're not where we need to be. There are still people who live within the LGBTQIA community who are afraid to seek health care. They're afraid to be honest when they're questioned because they're afraid they're going to be judged. And there's no way to necessarily fix that other than to have an open mind when you ask certain questions. And if, if you don't mind me saying so, get those cues that you're open to people sharing their background without judgment. You know, earlier you talked about pronouns. One of the things that I'm learning in my life as I age is I get pronouns incorrect all the time. I live within this community and I do it and I'm completely wrong sometimes, but I find that when I do it with an apology and humility and go, I'm so sorry, I'll, I'll try my best. That helps open dialogue and allows the patient then to trust you as a healthcare provider. The second thing is making your questions inclusive. I really dislike when I walk into a, a brand new practitioner and they ask me if I'm married. And when I say yes or no, they ask me how my wife is. We shouldn't do that. We should ask how a spouse is or your partner. And the reason for that is when you use that terminology, it sends a message to the person you're interviewing that you're open to a global answer, not necessarily a traditional answer. It does change. Um, the other side of this coin is as much as I think we've come ahead, we still have ways to go. I have friends who are transgender that when they try to establish care with a primary care person in Athens or anywhere else, they've said to me, I mentioned that I'm transgender and the front desk immediately tells me they don't take care of my kind here. They'll have to, you'll have to find someone else. This is someone just looking for a primary care provider. They're not asking for anything other than blood pressure checks and diabetes screenings and annual healthcare visits, vaccines. That scares me a bit because as much as I think we're making progress, we still are not seeing accessibility for everyone who lives in the community. And then the sad thing is there are some people who gain access and aren't honest with their care providers, afraid that they will be not treated fairly or even kicked out of a medical practice. I, I hate to say those things, but it's just stories I hear. So you ask a really great question. Is it on both sides? Yeah. The folks in the community distrust healthcare providers because they don't know what's going to happen to them. And providers have a sense of, I'm not quite sure what to do here. So do I take care of someone? What do I do? It, it's, it's really a conundrum if you're someone that doesn't have an idea of how to, to talk to people in the LGBTQ community or provide care specific to that individual. Because this distrust exists both ways, right? In some, yes. in some ways. When we talk about the safety of hormonal therapy or quitting smoking, things that we can essentially prevent going the wrong way of doing things versus the safe and healthy way of going things, quitting smoking, getting the correct hormonal therapy that can hopefully be covered by insurance, preventing diabetes, preventing heart disease, obesity. These numbers are incredibly high in the community. Yes. If this distrust exists, then how can we even start the prevention method? It seems like we're just working on the treating well, it's interesting because, you know, I have been, I was in practice for around 26 years and I would also seek care for my own health care from a young man to the age I am today. And every time I said something was wrong, they would go, have you had an HIV test? And I'm like, everything in the world is not about HIV because I identify as a gay man. So it's frustrating that we have to sort of say, this is not all about hormone therapy for transgender, HIV prevention for gay men. And the reason I said, those are stereotypes. Those are certainly a part of my health care, and we should have conversations about them. But I also want to make sure my blood pressure is at goal, my cholesterol is checking, I'm up to date on my immunizations. You're talking to me about wearing a seatbelt. I shouldn't smoke. 
I should really stop eating fast food and how much alcohol am I drinking during this pandemic where I'm sequestered and isolated? Your point's extremely well taken. We sometimes can't even get to those questions because we're too hung up on those stereotypical aspects of care associated. And what I said earlier is establishing care is establishing care as a whole person, not one aspect of my care. So that should not be the first question. Um, it also goes to show that you're listening to someone about their needs. I have a wonderful friend who's transgender, and she said she went to the ED with an ear infection, and they asked her which surgeries she's had. And she said, what does that have to do with my ear infection? And it was a lovely question. And the medical students burst out laughing when she was relaying the story because they, they understood what she was saying is, focus on my ear. Don't focus on the fact I'm transgender. And I thought, gosh, what a great, what a great story for somebody to walk away with from medical education to say, I once heard this person tell me this. I need to be mindful when I'm taking care of people. That, that's really important. Yeah. So speaking about, you know, first questions. Yeah. Should a first question be from the get-go, you know, what's your name? What's your date of birth? The, the questions that just come out of a healthcare professional without thinking, right? Sure. I do that in myself sometimes when I'm interviewing, I'll ask someone's date of birth. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny to my guess, but um, yeah, what's your name, your date of birth and your preferred pronouns? Why doesn't the preferred pronouns, you know, roll off the tongue? What can medical schools be doing to fix that? You know, and I think a lot of schools are putting things in the, are putting aspects of the curriculum to heighten the awareness. And you bring up a good point that when I introduce myself to someone, is it appropriate for me to go, hi, I'm Tim, my pronouns are he, him. Is that okay? Am I being pretentious? Am I being, you know, one side politically or another? I, I mean, sometimes it's just me letting you know that this is me. I think we're working our way towards that. You ask a great question about that, that first question when you meet a healthcare practitioner. I go one step back intake forms, the forms we fill out before we even get to the office, the, the forms in the emergency room, sometimes they are so limited on what the information's on there that people lie and they're not truthful on those forms because they're afraid of the backlash they're going to receive. And people may be shaking their heads going, I just can't believe that. I'm like, don't. It's not so long ago that we had people of color turned away from white institutions because they were people of color. So Please don't tell me that we don't have that happening in the healthcare system. We do. The second part of that, though, is creating an environment with those forms, the front desk, the people you talk to on the phone, even before you get to the actual healthcare provider, all sets an environment where I can then give you my pronouns without feeling that you're going to look at me like I'm crazy, or I'm going to share that I went through a surgical transition, or I'm HIV positive, and I'm holding that back because I wasn't sure if you would judge me or not. These are just examples. Um, or I don't need birth control because I'm in a relationship with another woman and we don't necessarily have to worry about this. These are all things that should come out during the course of a discussion with a new patient, but maybe they aren't the first questions. The first thing is the environment, how you set people at ease and how you walk in the room and introduce yourself and then how you approach them. Um, it's just being civil. I don't know any other way to, to say that. It seems like it's just good manners, but sometimes we forget our good manners. Now, you brought up people of color. We talk about people of color and the health disparities, yes, especially in Athens, a lot on this podcast and just a lot overall, you know, our whole coverage. Obviously, there are large health disparities for people of color. Yes. And then they're even larger when you're a person of color who identifies with the LGBTQ plus community. Now, we talk about people of color and we say some of these things can be fixed by combating this mistrust, 
by showing representation in the healthcare field. Now you can see the color of someone's skin, right? And in many ways that can make other people feel safer. And I do think that's a huge part of it, but you can't always see someone's sexual orientation. You can't see their pronouns. You can't even always see, you know, if they're transgender or they're cisgender. So how can we increase representation amongst the healthcare field when these professionals do identify with the LGBTQ plus community and, and how can we make it kind of known so others, so patients can feel safer? It's interesting because as a provider, I will tell you, I didn't necessarily share my personal life with my patients. That doesn't mean that I hid who I am or anything like that. It's just simply, I would do that no matter whom I would. I wouldn't walk in and go, oh my gosh, I just went out to dinner last night with so-and-so. I, it's just, there's a boundary that one has when they take care of patients. So your point about how do you get to know me and, and representation and what's there I would say that in the healthcare world, we need to recruit great people to be providers, period. It doesn't really matter to me, people of color, this ethnicity, that ethnicity, are you in this LGBTQ community, are you not? To me, it's recruitment of people who have empathy and they want to care for everyone. I I tell students this all the time, we took an oath to care for people. Nowhere in my oath did it narrow it down to a certain population that I could include or exclude. It says people, period. And I think your point about representation, yes, representation makes people feel safe or makes them feel like they have a kindred spirit. But I also think that the way we treat one another and the way we interact non-verbally helps set the stage as well. Now, it's interesting you ask that question because, and I'm biased in this way, when I choose a primary care physician, I tend to want to choose a man. That doesn't mean I have any problem whatsoever. I (laughs) met some amazing and have taught some incredible physicians who are not men, and but it's just my own personal preference making me feel comfortable. I understand the need to find a similarity or a connective place with the provider, um, and sometimes you can't have that, and sometimes the best person to see me is not a man. They're better at their job. They're better. They're well-regarded, and I have to swallow my bias and get over it. That's my problem, and I think as a patient living in the LGBT community, there's some level on that side as well. Sometimes you've just got to swallow your bias and your pride and take a shot that the person you're talking to is there to help you and show you empathy. And and that's difficult. And I get it. And it's scary as heck um, because let's face reality, your healthcare background is pretty intimate. It says a lot about you. And uh, your point about finding someone that makes you feel comfortable, I think it's just being connected, not necessarily being from the same flock of people, but just the fact that you're both empathetic, nice people, and you're a team within your healthcare. I don't know, that's what I seek, but I I do understand why people do try to find someone that comes from their background. It makes them feel like there's a a connection right off the bat and they don't have to explain themselves. I get it. And yeah, I have those biases too. I'm the opposite. I always prefer, you know, female physicians, my PD, because that's just what I saw. My pediatrician growing up was a female. Um, And so she understood. Now talking about pediatricians, right? I feel like a lot of the issues that the LGBTQ plus community faces in terms of health has been something that's originated through youth, essentially, right? There's so much stigma. There's also a lack of, you know, talking. There's the whole aspect of coming out of the closet. And I think pediatricians have, you know, a big play in that and they can help a lot. And also talking about youth and healthcare and LGBTQ plus community, mental health cannot be overlooked. No, not at all. So, you know, youth, youth, mental health numbers are through the roof and it feels like they're not even coming down. 
at this point. The pandemic just made it worse. I agree. And I think it's interesting you bring up taking care of kids. One of the things that drives me absolutely insane is the don't talk gay in front of your kid. They may turn gay. And I go, so if I talk heterosexual, they're going to turn heterosexual. Ridiculous. Um, (laughs) You know, people are who they are and and that is going to evolve as they grow and they, and they come to terms with who they are. And the only way that's going to make that less stressful, less traumatic, and maybe even spare some of the mental anguish you and I are going to talk about in a second to come into an environment where people just let kids be who they are and identify who they are. I find it hilarious that when you have a young man sitting in a restaurant and he, and the little kid turns and looks at the waitress, everybody goes, he's going to be a ladies man. But if he had turned and looked at the waiter that I'll be like, oh, he likes the way he dresses. Well, no, maybe he finds the waiter attractive. Um, You know, we start very early on putting our own biases onto our children, onto the the younger population. And so when it's time for them to declare themselves, whatever that declaration would be, I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm transgender. They're like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is going to hate my guts because they, they want me to be this. And to your point about the healthcare world, it could be a safe space. It could be the one place that a 13 year old can voice their concerns to a primary care physician or a pediatrician in which they see that someone may need some counseling, some handholding, or heck, just someone to talk to as they work through their process of how they're going to declare themselves to their environment, to the people around them. And unfortunately, the network is not as strong as it could be. And I think you said this earlier, we can't have this conversation without talking about mental health in the LGBTQIA community. Mental health is probably one of the biggest aspects to care that we see, and also lack of access to people trying to find a way to handle their mental health issues continues to be a problem. Yeah, and so so going back, you know, like the, but the numbers don't seem to come down. You would think, you know, generations of physicians are hopefully making it better. We're getting, as we like to say, woker, right? We know what's going out in the world. We know how hard it is for people to come out of the closet. And I I can't, you know, I'm sure that it's gotten better in terms of acceptance, but the pandemic in some way has also made it seem like it's reversed and taken a lot back. Well, let's call it out. It's not only the pandemic, it's been the social climate that's occurred over the past few years where people are much more vocal about their displeasure or dislike of a certain population. And it goes both sides, both ways. But if you know that you're going to be attacked on the street because you chose to wear a rainbow pin or a Black Lives Matter pin or an All Lives Matter pin or the blue flag of the, of the police, that's a scary situation. I, all I'm trying to do is buy a gallon of milk. I'm not trying to get into conflict at the cash register because someone saw my pin on my lapel. So, so I think your point is extremely well taken. We were making strides, and I think we've taken steps backwards during this particular time of isolation. And uh, as I said earlier, sometimes I think we've forgotten our good manners. I, I think sometimes we've just forgotten how, how to be pleasant, even when it drives us crazy that we're the pleasant one. But that's the civility that we're missing a little bit of. And, and it does play a role in LGBTQIA feeling comfortable. And that will be true for any population that's marginalized. It's not just this population. Right. So why do you think specifically the population of LGBTQ youth, their mental health numbers, the issues that they're facing is only rising if professionals are saying they're getting more woke or getting more open-minded or getting more, even more education as to how to handle this, especially pediatricians? You know, are they? Or what, we're, or what we're just finding out that it's in the mainstream more and we're hearing more about it. Are there still people in a town that cannot come out because they're petrified of bullying? 
are there people that are still in a situation where they can't be who they want to be because family has put them into a program that doesn't allow it to happen? Mm-hmm. I, I think all that still occurs. Your question about the numbers, I actually think we, we're seeing the numbers go up because we're seeing, we're seeing people be more transparent about who they are. And I think we're seeing more uh, reliable statistics from mental health and healthcare providers giving us those data to let us know. But to be fair, in the last 10 years, seeking mental health, the stigma has left, right? When I was a child, if I didn't feel well, my parents said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's no reason for this. Now we know that that probably isn't the advice you need to give (laughs) your child. The advice is, hey, we need to get you somewhere so you can talk through this and figure out what's going on with someone who really knows what they're doing. So I do think we're using mental mental health care much more so than ever in the past. So the numbers are going up because I think we're getting better at utilizing the services that are available to us, so much so that it's almost impossible to get a health care appointment in a mental health provider's office right now within six months mm-hmm. uh, because of everything that's been going on. And my friends who work in the health care and the mental health care world tell me they are inundated with folks just looking to, to I don't know, feel better, if that's the right term, but just get it, get it together during all the stuff that's been going on in this world. Now, Clearly, you have a lot of experience in this. What are some of the efforts through your life, through your career that you've been working on, especially with the AUMCG partnership, personally, to decreasing these health disparities and trying to make the healthcare field more inclusive and more of a safe space? And you're an educator too as well. So if you could talk about that and and passing that knowledge on to the next generation. You know, I think one thing I mentioned earlier about disparities in healthcare and making sure that we treat people as individuals, there are still things that happen within the LGBTQIA population that you must be aware of and you must put special emphasis on it depending on which person they are within that community. I'll give you an example. HIV prevention for someone that's considered to be a high sexual risk. I think that's a hilarious term. I think if you have sex, you're at risk. I don't think there's such things as a high risk. I just think you have risk. Only 25% of people who are in a situation where they could prevent HIV are on PrEP, which is a product that's used to decrease the transmission of HIV from one person to another. Even though it's more affordable, it's easy and it's out there. One of the things that we've been working on or I have been working on in the past is creating that accessibility from the front desk check-in all the way back to when they came to see me through my nurse and talking to people saying, it says here that you identify as a gay male. It says here that you identify as a transgender female. Tell me about what's going on in your world. Who are you seeing? What are your practices? And that leads a dialogue to, should we talk about this? Should we talk about vaccines that help prevent certain things like hepatitis? Those are things that I started early on uh, in around 2010 to 12, really working on that. But to me, that was creating an environment where people could have a conversation. And I hope to goodness we had impact where people had a reduction in their HIV risk because we got them on these medications and we explained the benefit. Taking that to the next level, when I moved to Athens and took this job as a, as a professor and an educator, one of my goals was to take everything I had learned and help people understand it from the very beginning. I wish someone had done that for me. It took me years to understand how to listen, um, how to be more open, how to ask the right questions. Gosh, it took me forever not to walk in a room and make an assumption because it's my bias. And by bringing that life experience into the AUUGA partnership, we've been very lucky in the fact that our faculty here is so lovely and the fact that they want to adapt and move and really give our students 
the most well-rounded education they can. So we've actually installed a lot of different aspects and learning patterns for our students in the medical school so they could start having some exposure to folks who live in the LGBTQI community, uh, QA community. And one of the key things that has been panels, actually community-based panels where people come in from Athens, citizens from Athens. These are not healthcare professionals. These are not professionals in any sense of the word in terms of you know, speakers. They're just everyday folks who, who have volunteered their time just to answer questions from these students. It is awesome. And we've created a safe space. And I've told the students, no question is off, is off record. You can ask anything you wish as long as it's being asked in the environment in which you're trying to learn. And the panelists have taken to it. Like they share more. There are times I turn beet red, the things that are being shared. But it's hilarious because the students walk away going, I get it now. Now I know why I need to treat this particular individual this way. Um, it's lovely. And those three panels that we've put into the practice have really helped the students meet and question, and I hope change their perceptions of people in the community. Um, we have a panel with folks living with HIV. We have a panel with those that identify as LGBTQIA, and there's a mixture of folks in that panel. And then my last panel is a community provider panel for those with mental health, physicians, pharmacists that care for folks uh, and make their practices very accessible for people that are LGBTQIA. So they get a nice cross-section of people to talk to um, so they can figure out how they want to practice when they graduate. And, and I hope be prepared uh, to take care of patients from the population. Wow, those sound like amazing initiatives. Hopefully more people can join them eventually because I know that everybody could use, regardless of them being in, in a healthcare, uh, use that knowledge about just treating you know others around you in your community with understanding and with respect. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I truly appreciate it. I hope, you know, whoever's listening to this got something out of it, whether it's actually understanding healthcare and how it works and disparities that exist, or just learning that, you know, at the end of the day, respect is all you got to give and, and, you know, understanding is all you got to strive for. I agree. If, if the end of this, if anybody just thinks for themselves, huh, have I, have I done that? I need to watch myself. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that helps me when people call me out. Uh, it also makes me a better person. and It makes me a better provider. Um, I don't know. If anybody's listening to that, then you've learned a great lesson today because it took me years to get it. And so today's the day that hopefully your eyes are kind of opened a little bit as well. For sure. All right, Dr. Brown. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Athens Frontline podcast presented by The Red and Black. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra. Make sure you tune back in next week for our next episode. Until then, check us out on social media at Red and Black. Have a healthy and safe rest of your week.